Afternoon. How is everybody doing? All right. Dave, I need your response, man. Let's go. <laughs> it's Thursday. Well. It's raining here in San Diego today, which is really disappointing. I'm English, and so I don't like the rain at the best of times, but it is miserable. So uh, we're going to brighten things up in just a minute with our, our guest this week. But before we do that, I do want to give a big birthday shout out to our producer in the background, Mr. Jonathan Frazier, who can we, can we drag him real quick? Happy there birthday. he is. Happy birthday, sir. There's the Hello, guy. thank That's you, thank you, thank guy. you. <laughs> Have a great day, my friend. And uh, so for those of you that don't know, Jonathan's in the back end. He, he designs all our graphics, our videos, and he's managing a lot of the back end of the show as well. So thank you, sir, and uh, enjoy your birthday. But today is Jonathan's birthday, but we are also here to welcome our guest. Mr. Ben Wright is a founder of the uh, Hen House Prowlers, taking the band on the road for more than 15 years and proudly leading Chicago's robust bluegrass scene. The Prowlers have recorded eight albums, toured relentlessly, and in 2013 began working with the U.S. State Department as musical diplomats. To date, they have traveled to more than 25 countries. Inspired by opportunities for education and diplomacy, Ben and his business partner, John Goldfein, started the 501c3 nonprofit Bluegrass Ambassadors in 2014. A fantastic musician with a remarkable story and a great friend of Deering, please welcome... Mr. Ben Wright, and I believe the full band as well. In they come. Yay. Hey, everybody. <laughs> How you hey. doing, Ben? Good. Great to see you guys. Great to see you. Yeah, you are at a venue. You're playing a show tonight, right? Yeah, uh, we are in uh, Lake o Orion. Lake Orion. Lake Orion. You're outside of Detroit. Orion. Lake Orion. We're outside of Detroit. That's right. Uh, I thought we had this dial before we started. At 20 Front Street. Well, it's, it's weird. You, you, you read it, you look at it, and it looks like it's Orion, but it's Lake Orion. Uh, and this beautiful venue, as you can tell, we're, we're borrowing their stage to do this before we play tonight. So That's nice. awesome. Yeah. Right. Well, we're, it's not often that we get a full band to open up the show, so uh, as always, we're going to invite you to play a little tune for us, and uh, what do you got for us today? Uh, this is a tune written by our guitar player, Chris Dollar. It's off our most recent album, uh, and it's called Little Rose. It goes like this. One, two, three. <laughs> Yeah. 
All right. Hey. Yeah. Thanks, guys. So fantastic. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. yeah, it's good to have you. Good to see you. Um, I don't remember the last time we ran into each other somewhere, but uh, it's been a bit. Might, might have been that uh, uh, that thing in Ohio, uh, that huge festival in Ohio. The Mumford thing from Mumford. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was wild. <clears throat> uh, but, but why don't you give us some history on on the band? I mean, you you're a founding member, right? The band. And, yeah. Um, and how long? When did y'all come about? And how did how did it all start at? I mean, t- 2004. Uh, I I moved to Chicago in '99 and uh, bought my first banjo. It like pretty quickly after I got to Chicago. Um, Chicago has a really robust bluegrass scene, uh, even more so now than it was when I was there. But uh, I literally uh, I knew I wanted to play a musical instrument and. Uh, and had some money in my pocket one day when I walked by the Old Town School of Folk Music, and it happened to be the exact amount that was uh, that a banjo in the window cost. Uh, and I walked in and uh, bought bought a banjo and kind of became obsessed with it. Uh, took lessons there at the Old Town School uh, and started making connections. You know, one of the th- one of the things that I thought. Uh, I wanted to play the banjo for. I was like, oh, I, I know a lot of people. They all play music. There aren't any that that many banjos around, and uh, and that was a good instinct uh, because it wasn't hard for me to find people that wanted to have a banjo to play with them. There just weren't a whole lot of people playing banjo at the time, uh, right. and I started playing in a couple of different bands. I mean, they were terrible. I mean, I was just learning. Like, I bought that banjo, and a week later, I was playing with people, like playing the wow. forward roll. Uh, in in a, in really bad bands, like it wasn't uh, it wasn't about making quality music. It was about making quantity because I needed <laughs> to get better, you know. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, and so I met. Uh, I eventually met John, my business partner. Uh, we were playing. We played in a couple of. Uh, I played in a band. He sat in one night on a, on Halloween. I think probably two thousand three. Uh, and we enjoyed playing together, and there was a venue on the north side of Chicago called the Red Line Tap, and they had Tuesday nights open. Uh, and a bunch of people, we were like, hey, let's just throw a band together. Uh, and at the time, I was actually playing in a rock band with an electric banjo, uh, and kind of everybody else in this band was also playing in different bands, and this was, this was our excuse to increase our bluegrass chops was to play every Tuesday night in Rogers Park. Um, but I think what happened was that everybody had these experiences playing in different bands and there were things that we didn't like about the, the bands we were playing in. They were all great musicians, great people, but it, they weren't our bands. They weren't constructed in a way that we felt was what we wanted. So the, the group, of, the original group of Henhouse Prowlers were like, let's do this the way we w- we want to based on what we've learned thus far being musicians. Uh, and so it was like a, a partnership of six guys and everybody had their job. Uh, my job was, uh, I was to, to do promotion. And this was like just as Facebook was t- taking off. And I remember like start making my first Facebook event and th- thinking it would never take off. Uh, but it really, that's the kind of stuff that really helped the band grow. We played every single Tuesday for 10 years at this bar on the north side of Chicago and built a following. Uh, and we started doing the concentric circles thing, you know, like, oh, let's, let's play in Rockford. Uh, and then, oh, let's play in Peoria. And then, oh, let's play in St. Mm -hmm. Louis. Let's play in Minneapolis and kind of going further and further out. Uh, and so, yeah, the, the, we all quit our other bands and made this our full-time job. Uh, and, uh, I mean, it took a while. We, you know, we didn't make a lot of money at first, and we still don't, but we've, I feel really good about where we're at regardless, you know? So everybody was kind of coming at it at the same, um, you know, experience level. Everybody's kind of, it, it, they're pretty green, but so you're, and yeah. you, you could try things, and it was just... Yeah, and there was a vibe or anything with anybody else. Yeah, and it was a it really was a great group of guys, and there was we believed in consensus, you know, like as Mm -hmm. decision making process, which is difficult. Consensus is 
is difficult. It is like you you don't it, uh, you don't get your you, way all the time. <laughs> exactly, but you, and you learn how to compromise, and uh, and that's a way. Like John and I are are technically the leaders of this band, but we really do try. Uh, as you could tell, we're, uh, we have we found Chris and Jake, and they're both fabulous musicians, and we want to keep them around, and we can't just go around making decisions without pulling them in on that stuff, and uh, and so. I I I I believe I really do believe in consensus is a, a a difficult but good way to run a band. Um and uh well it sounds like you really came at learning the instrument, learning to play play the right way of playing with people. So many other people, so many um banjoists, uh, you know, stay in their bedroom and you yeah. know learn from books but never play with anybody else. Yeah. But how how important is it how, how can you kind of, you know, talk about how important you think it is to be playing with people when you're learning? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I a thousand percent agree with that. I, I had an experience early on at one of my earliest gigs where somebody, uh, this young kid came out. He was probably my age at the time. And he was so excited to meet another banjo player. And he's like, oh, I, I play the banjo and, and I'm going to go home and get my banjo. Maybe during set break we can play together. And we played together and he just mopped the floor with me. He was such a great player. And I was like, you have to sit in with us. Come sit in with us on the second set. And he got up and could barely get a note out because he had never played with anybody before. And he was a right. great player, but he didn't have that skill set. And mm -hmm. it is such an important skill set. And, you know, you don't have to be good to play with other people. And I know that sounds, that's a weird way of saying it, but like I, I have this other very distinct memory, probably week three of, after buying my banjo where there was a party and in this party there in the basement, there were a bunch of people playing music, just guitars and tambourines. Like it was a big hippie party. And I went and got my banjo and sat down. And again, I played the forward roll and G, C and D. And it blew people's minds, you know, like, like, like they were like, this guy could play the banjo. And I was like, I've only been playing for three weeks. But most people don't know what a banjo, right. like what, you know, I'm, you don't have to be Tony Trishka to really contribute musically to a situation. Uh, if you can, if you've got some good fundamentals and a decent amount of rhythm, you're going to contribute and be a valuable member of a group, you know, but you got yeah, to play so <laughs> exactly. It's 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 an original sound for a, for a lot of people's ears. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, Absolutely. you just you just make some make some make some banjo sound in time and, right. and st without stopping, <laughs> and yeah. then it can it works. Yeah. yeah. So how and long I was do, it for? Yeah, go ahead. I do I do have to give uh, I have to mention Greg Cahill. Uh, you know he. I, I, I took a, I took lessons from this guy at the old town school named Gus, who was a, a real character, a fabulous teacher, gave me some great fundamentals. But Greg Cahill uh, really not only gave me some solid right and left hand technique stuff, but he also uh, he also really taught me what it means to be a professional musician and to uh, have a band that's on the road and manage your responsibilities at home and manage the band and try to make everything work as well as possible. Uh, and I, I have this story that I tell about Greg that uh, our, one of our, our second guitar player, who was good, I really liked him, and he was uh, leaving the band, you know? We weren't making any money, I don't blame him. But he was leaving the band and I, I went to Greg and I was just like, oh my God, like, what am I gonna do? Where, you know, like, how am I gonna find another guitar player and go through this? And, Remember Greg just kind of like grabbed my shoulder and was like, "Man, if you if you can't deal with people leaving your band, you're in the wrong business." <laughs> you know, like, okay. and and uh, and it was a, in a loving way, but still, it was this kind of wake up call. I was like, "Oh, this is part of the, this is part of it." You know, like mm -hmm. nobody, no bluegrass bands are making millions of dollars uh, and making people think I'm going to do this until I'm 75. It takes idiots like me to think that's possible. But I can't expect that from people that join my band. Uh, and it's so he just has been a mentor for 20 years now. And I, I can't I, I have to talk about him when I talk about my. Yeah, my you're, you're lucky to have, you know, 
you know, one of one of the you know, you know, bluegrass banjo masters in yeah. around. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, so, how long was it before y'all all started playing? Like with the before it turned into a full time, you know, job. Uh, well, John would know. Like probably, <laughs> I mean, I, at the time I was a social worker, uh, and I did both uh, for a while. And I'm guessing around 2010 or 11. Uh, was when I, I came face to face with like making that choice. Uh, I remember I came into work mo- late one morning and my boss was like, I, I'm starting to sense your priorities are shifting and I really like you, but I, I don't ever want to be in a position where I have to let you go. So uh, you should think about your life. <laughs> I remember him saying that. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I did, you know, and, and it was a big jump because that was, I was making, I don't know, <laughs> at the time it felt like a lot of money. It was $25,000 a year as a social worker. Uh, and, uh, and I had to quit. I mean, the band, I don't, maybe I shouldn't be saying this stuff, but I don't care. I mean, we were making 400 bucks a month. Like we, like, and, and so I knew I'd have to do quite a bit of work to make ends meet if I quit that job. But I was, you know, it was the kind of the classic thing. Like, I don't want to turn 65 and think, geez, what if I had done that? You know? And, and so I, I left my job, which I still miss. I loved that job. Uh, but but it was the right decision. Um, so I'm guessing 2011, 2012 was when I went full time and I started teaching lessons and, you know, making ends meet for sure. Yeah. But that's, yeah. that's what it was for quite a while. <laughs> so. And you talked about having some turnover in the band. Um, how do you, do you think the band's sound has changed through the years from where, you know, you started and with the different, with the different um, members and, and where, where you're at right, right now? Profoundly. Uh, you know, there's no way that you bring you bring somebody new into a group, and they're going to change the sound. And uh, that was never a challenge for me. Like I appreciate that. Um, I, I it's because it's fresh in my mind. I can talk about like Jake, our mandolin player. He's he joined right before COVID shut everything down. We did 12 shows with him. It was a perfect fit. And then COVID stopped us, and uh, and he's, you know, he, he went to Berkeley. Like, I mean, he's just musically one of the most incredible musicians I've ever played with, and he's pushed us to a new level. Uh, and inspires. I mean, that's the thing. You bring somebody in, and we all inspire each other musically, and that's I think one of the beautiful things about being in a band. It's not a jam session. This is, these are people I play with every day. And you can't help but inspire and influence each other. Uh, and Chris, too, our guitar player, is you know a fabulous songwriter, great. His rhythm, I love playing banjo with his rhythm. Uh, and we all push each other. And, and I can think back to Star Moss, our guitar player before Chris, who was a real Tony Rice-like player. And you know everybody's got their their thing that they bring and really gives the band a sound for while they're in the band. And it's something I really appreciate. Absolutely. That's interesting. You brought up the playing behind, you know, really strong guitar player rhythmically. Um, What I haven't really talked about that with other people. What do you think, what are you like hearing? What does it do for you? When, when do you know that, 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 how does it affect your playing when that, when that rhythm is is really is really right behind you yeah it's it, it, it i remember that the, the guitar player i mentioned previously who left the band and i was devastated he was the first guitar player i ever played with where i felt that click and something about the 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 bluegrass right hand guitar playing and the scruggs three finger rolls that really match somehow and inspire me and, and push push me to play harder and ahead of the beat like I don't, I don't know quite it's hard I've never been able to really put my finger on it too much but when somebody's learned to play bluegrass guitar the way that 
we see most professional bands playing it. It makes playing the banjo so much more fun for me. Uh, you know, like, and I, I can't even really explain it. It's just, I love it. And I always have. Yeah. It makes me want to play more. Yeah, I mean, it's like playing, if you're playing in a band with drums, so having, you know, the, just the right drummer in the band. It's, <laughs> it's, you could just, you can sit back and just play. You don't have to feel like you're muscling the sound forward. That's a really good way of putting it. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, and and then you, um, I want to get into the you know one thing that makes the your band so unique is is the work y'all have done with the State Department and uh, and being musical diplomats and how did this all come about? How did you how did you kind of get that rolling? <clears throat> Yeah, uh, there's a program. This is all kind of interwoven together at this point. Uh, but back when we first started doing it, uh, I forget exactly who it was, but someone mentioned to us, hey, there's a, there's a program called American Music Abroad, and you guys should apply for it. Uh, and, uh, and so I looked at it, and what that program is, it's a State Department-funded program that is directly connected to what was they called the jazz ambassadors in the 1950s where they sent uh, you know it was the middle of the cold war and uh, we were kind of having this war without weapons with russia and russia was sending uh orchestras and ballet groups uh and all these pieces of russian culture all over the world to have influence uh to have cultural uh, influence on the world because the, here, we were the two superpowers and the United States couldn't have that, uh, couldn't, you know, they needed to have a part of that too. And so they were like, what's, what's the most powerful form of American culture? And, and they were like jazz, like everybody in the world loves jazz. And so they sent Louis Armstrong, Dizzy Gillespie, uh, all these all of the best jazz musicians all over the world. And there's a, re a really great documentary that uh, called The Jazz Ambassadors that PBS did that really tells the story about what a powerful program that was and why it continues to this day, you know, this concept of cultural diplomacy, uh, which has inspired us to move and do more, do more of it ourselves. It's really this beautiful thing where you exchange culture with other parts of the world. And um, yes, we get sent to various countries to play music, but it's not just playing bluegrass. We, we learn music from that culture and make sure that we learn something about those places even before we go there. So there really is an element of an exchange. Uh, and there are these, the, we've had these incredible experiences and now in 27 countries, I think it is. Uh, and that stuff, you know, we realized quickly that they were incredible opportunities and that we were uh, building this repertoire of songs in different languages. Um, and, we were, and people in the States were falling in love with these songs, too, and wanted to hear them and were excited about them. And so um, we, and, and, you know, the first tour we did was to West Africa. Uh, we were in uh, Congo, Liberia, Niger, and Mauritania, uh, four, four countries Americans don't get to go visit very often. Um, and that was a powerful tour, tour, but we didn't really learn any songs before we went that might be familiar in the region. Uh, but our next tour was to Nigeria, and we learned this song, Chop My Money, it's called. Uh, and it's... Uh, like every time we played it in Nigeria for two weeks, people lost their minds. Uh, and they did. I mean, they just, I mean, uh, as John, our bass player, likes to say, we'd be playing and everybody from toddlers to grandmothers were dancing when we played the song. It was like a, it was a cultural anthem for them, uh, written by this duo called P-Square. Um, and we brought that song back home with us and started playing it for audiences here. And it got to the point, to this day, it's probably the most requested song we play. Uh, and, you know, something about that really struck us. Like, what an incredible opportunity to 
talk about these places we're going, share music from them, hopefully, uh, you know, bring a sense of reality to these places that people might not always ha get when they just hear about it in the news. Um, and so that's why we started Bluegrass Ambassadors, um, which is our nonprofit. Uh, and we continue to do cultural diplomacy work abroad with, with it, but we also build these educational programs here back in the States um, that kind of use bluegrass, which is obviously this powerful American form of our personal culture in this country. We use it as an opportunity to talk about all different kinds of music from all over the place. Uh, and uh, yes, it's, uh, I'm really excited about the kind of opportunities we're getting with that. And it's, it's not just, uh, it's not just sharing music from other parts of the, of the world or talking about different parts of the world. We've applied what we've learned from those uh, tours to working with kids in schools here in the States. And like, we can't go into a school that's primarily Hispanic and just play bluegrass music. So right. we have to learn music that they're familiar with before they're ever gonna listen to right. something that we're doing. Uh, and, and so it's been really exciting for us to, to build these programs and uh, hopefully find something that connect with kids on that they're already familiar with instead of trying to cram bluegrass down their throats, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> it's incredible what you've you done. You've really found this niche in there, and it's, it's you know, it, it, it's wild. Um, yeah, thanks. <laughs> what's, what's, I'm sure you have a ton of stories from all these travels all over, but Ed, what's uh, something that stands out? You know, just... Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, everything from incredible musical experiences where they... Um, where they give us uh, 90 minutes with, I remember we were in Niger on that very first tour and they gave, literally gave us 90 minutes to figure out how to play a 15 minute set with a band that didn't, none of them spoke English. They all spoke French and local dialects and they just plopped us in a room with these guys. And I remember just being scared out of my mind, like, oh, how's this gonna work, you know? and and. Hey. But within two minutes, we all had our instruments out and were trading chords. And, you know, like I was instead of saying, hey, let's do this in the key of A, we were all watching each other's hands. And and before you know it, we had a couple of songs worked out. One like they were singing something that they knew. And then we did a bluegrass song and they played along with us. And it was just this incredibly a uh, natural thing that felt at first like I was scared out of my mind. Uh, and and I, the other cool thing about that was this was, I mean, Niger is the heart of West Africa and so much world culture has come out of that part of the world, uh, including the banjo. And right. there, was, there was a guy in that band who played the accounting. And uh, the accounting is... Uh, elongated uh, banjo, like the, 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 the banjo part, the pot part is much longer with a skin stretched over it. And then there's a long neck and there are three strings. Two are attached to the headstock and there's one halfway up the neck. And this guy was playing it with this kind of little stick, playing it like that. And I could not communicate with him. And I could not, so I couldn't say to him like, hey, Pretty sure that thing is the great, great, great grandfather of this, you know, but right. I was able to say, hey, let me hear play each string. I was like, ding, ding, ding. And I realized that the accounting was half step below the banjo and that was it. And so I turned the banjo down half step and he and I were able to play together instantly uh, because, right. you know, and, it, and there was so there was <laughs> there's no way there's no way to like. Say, hey, your your instrument has influenced an entire genre of music in the United States, um, but it didn't matter because we were able to play music together because of that, you know. Uh, so it was, you know, just an incredibly cool. yeah, powerful really cool. moment, you know. <laughs> so, and, and were you as were you well versed and did you listen to a lot of world music before you started doing this, or are you now more of a, you know? ethnomusicologist on some level 
I mean, I I, uh, I did not listen to a lot of world music. I, I do. Uh, it was a, it was quite a wild coincidence that we went to West Africa first for one of those tours. Uh, my father is a uh, coincidentally an African history professor, uh, and he focused mostly on a small country called the Gambia in West Africa, uh, which is uh, west and north of uh, Niger and Liberia, where we were. And uh, and so Africa has been a part of me because I grew up eating African food, and my dad took me there when I was like 17 or 18. Uh, and it's always been a place that I craved going to. Uh, but... I, I wouldn't call myself anything other than the son of a historian before we started doing these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now, you know, by default, because every time we go to one of these countries, we learn some music. I suppose there's a little bit of ethnomusicologist in me, but it, it's not. Um, I just love these songs because they remind me of these countries we've been to where we've been treated like kings uh, and and of the friends that I've made in these countries. And uh, yeah, so so no, I'm not an ethnomusicologist. I'm just a banjo player who tries <laughs> tries to play these wild melodies. Uh, so, uh, well, do you want to play another tune for us? Yeah, let me let me get the guys. Hey, can you can you uh, get the guys and we'll play? I'll give you a little background while they're getting their instruments. Sure. Uh, we went to another one of the tours we went to was East Africa, uh, and we were in. Uh, Kenya and the the song we learned for this for our trip to Kenya was uh, by a band called Saudi Soul Uh, and Saudi Soul is a really massively popular pop group out of out of Kenya and they sing in a in a bunch of different languages but mostly or primarily Swahili and uh, we went and uh, performed in Kenya. <laughs> it, there was a million stories from that trip. But Kenya is this stunningly beautiful country, incredible people, uh, amazing audiences. Uh, and, you know, we're working with the State Department. They kind of have connections. And they, uh, they got us on the equivalent of Good Morning America, but it was like Good Morning Nairobi. Uh, and, uh, and it was just like, you know, those crappy morning shows you see here, uh, you know, same thing. Like they had someone reading horoscopes and, um, Mm. so they had, they wheeled in this cart and there was a chef showing how to cook a thing, you know, I mean, it was just the the exact thing you see on the exact, exact same thing. And, uh, they were like, okay, welcome to the American band. Let's see what these guys do. And we play this song that I'm about, we're about to play for you. And, uh, and the, like, I'll never forget the hosts who are these beautiful people, as they always are on those shows, and their jaws just, like, they lost all composure when we started playing the song. Uh, and what happened was, you know, millions of people saw it, including the band, sorry, or Saudi Soul. And so okay. these, guys, these guys who are rock stars all yeah. of a sudden decided they have the, had the time to meet us. And they came to our hotel, and we spent an afternoon hanging out with arguably one of the biggest bands in the, on the continent. Wow, that's and, cool. And we were, like, swapping stories with them. Like, you know, what's it like to tour in, in Kenya versus in the United States? And they were talking about tours that they took in, in the United States where there are these little pockets of Kenya, Kenyan people mm-hmm. in Chicago, Minneapolis, all over and like this huge band in Africa that tours and flies to all their gigs in Africa, they had to, they were literally touring by Greyhound bus in the U S because, because that's what they could afford to do. And I'll never forget one of the stories. uh, You know, I asked him one of them, I was like, Hey, what, what was the weirdest thing about America to you? And I remember he said, uh, we first, we got to New York city and we went and we were hungry went into this restaurant, we sat down at the counter and we ordered food. And I realized that uh, everybody, it, it was like, and we were eating and stuff and this woman next to me, she'd ordered something and she told the waiter she didn't like it and she wasn't going to pay for it. <laughs> and he's like, and that just blew my mind. Like, you don't do that in Africa. You know, you order something, they give it to you and you, if you don't like it, you act like you did. 
You know, like, you don't, you don't say, I don't like this, I'm not paying for it. But I thought it was a pretty cool perspective. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so the guys are, are here, and we're going we're gonna to play that cool. song. Um, this is called What's the Sura, name of it? It's called Surayako. Uh, and, and really, uh, after you see us play this, go look up the original band, Sauti Soul, S-A-U-T-I-S-O-L. And the song's called Surayako, S-U-R-A-Y-A-K-O. Uh, it's this beautiful. The music video for this song is so cool. This song is like it's a wedding song, uh, and there's this this tradition in East Africa where you have to pick your bride out from a line of of women where everything's covered up on them but their eyes, and you have to pick your wife out just by her eyes. Uh, and the the video shows it. It's really cool. Um, but the song's just a love song, saying how much I love you and I want to. Uh, I want to protect you like the police. That's one of the lines. But you won't understand any of it because it's in Swahili. But uh, we're going to do our best here. So. Can we, uh, tilt that up a little yeah. Bit? Let, me, uh, let me introduce the guys real quickly here. This is Chris Dollar on guitar, Mr. Jake Howard on the mandolin, and Mr. Jonathan Goldfine on bass. Eager John. Eager John Goldfine. <laughs> All right.
Yeah. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> cool. That, that sounds fantastic. I got to definitely check out the, the original too. Oh, you really do. It's really, it's, it's amazing. So. <clears throat> so y'all have, uh, have, do you have, before we move on, do you, is it, when you're playing different, different, you know, genres of music of, from different place in the world, do you find uh -huh. it difficult rhythmically on the banjo? Do you have to adjust your playing? Yeah, for sure. Uh, that tune, what, that's in five? What is that in, John? Uh, it's, it's like uh, it's 12 8? 12-8 time. <laughs> so it's like... Six eight, is that right? It's like it's funny. Yeah, we you can count it a bunch of different ways. It's funny we've been playing this song for several years now, and it still is mystifying uh, to play in a bluegrass on bluegrass instruments because it is it is so so far from what we do. And you know, it, and every time we get an opportunity to do one of these songs from a different country. It's kind of like, I always have this feeling like, here it comes. Like, like uh, you know, we always ask for help from somebody who lives there. Like, hey, we only have the time and the resources to learn one song for a country we're going to. Let's make sure it's something everybody's going to recognize. And so we, can't, we can't pick that. So we, we usually have the embassy put us in touch with a young person uh, and, and say, hey, what, if we were going to learn one song, what should it be? And I, every time we get sent like a YouTube link or something, like I always feel like as I'm about to click the button, like here we go, because it's a it is a huge undertaking to. Yeah. I mean, I, I you know I spend hours in my apartment pacing back and forth, Suryako Muzurimama, Muzurimama, you know, like because that's the only way to memorize that is it's phonetic and you just got to drill it into your head and then you got to apply the music to it. And, and it's, it's an undertaking and it's one I'm yeah. proud and it feels like such an honor to do, you know, but it's, it's a lot of work, you know, when you, when you unlock that rhythmic, uh, kind of that rhythmic, you know, puzzle, um, it, it feels so good, but, yeah, when, oh. it's, when it's just like this random, it like, doesn't make sense, you're counting it, and it <laughs> doesn't line up. It's like, what? Yeah. But it and finally comes together. It's like, oh, I see, I get it. Right, and there's no, there's nobody, there, there's no banjo player I can talk to. I mean, certainly there's guys that are better than me and have better instincts uh, and been playing longer, but I can't go to somebody and be like, hey, how do I play this rhythm that's really popular in Africa on a five-string right. banjo? I mean, I suppose if I had Bela's phone number in my pocket, sure, or something, sure. you know, like, right. but I don't. So, <laughs> right. so there's lots of limited call lists for that. Right. Um, <laughs> um, and then traveling all throughout the world, have y'all? How do you bring your gear everywhere? And have you had any stories of of, of gear missing? Uh well, <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, in regards to the international stuff with the State Department, we, I think I, one of the reasons a bluegrass band is so uh, perfect for that kind of work is because we can perform with our full setup, which is wireless. You know, we have pickups and wireless gear and in-ear monitors and all that, but we can also just play with a single microphone. And there's times when we've had to do that I remember we were in Nigeria at this university once, and uh, you know, th that part of the world, it was colonized, and then when they got their independence, when these countries got their independence, the, the people from these colonies left and left whatever technology was there, and oftentimes it hasn't been updated. Uh, and there, there's fascinating places we've played, these kind of opulent theaters that were built in the 30s that now have holes in the floor on the stage and have lighting equipment that is from the early 20th century and sound equipment too. 
uh, and uh, just comical situations, sound situations where we we're playing in front of a thousand people and we only have one microphone, literally one SM57. Uh, and we've got and we and we got to figure out how to make it work. No, it's not like a nice condenser or anything. It's, no, no, it's a it's a fifty seven. Uh, and and uh, but you know we've never we've never had anything missing on any of those tours. Uh, but I do have a a, a story about uh, that's very very much related to Deering actually. Um, back when we applied for American Music Abroad the first time. 2014, I think it was. Uh, you know, it's it's a big deal. Like you apply the application. The application doesn't take long to fill out, but once you're accepted, they'll f you have to meet them in a different like either San Francisco or New York uh, or LA. I forget which city, and uh, you have to audition in front of these State Department people who are kind of uh, scary be honest with you when, when you know their their job is to not show you any emotion or give you any feedback so and um, and you play like a couple of songs and they ask you questions and it's just stressful and so we we did our audition and we felt I felt this huge load lifted off of me it was in, and we were in San Francisco we went and stayed uh, with an old friend of mine that night and we had a really good night, like kind of night you have after you've blown off a bunch of steam and stress is off your shoulders. And uh, we s foolishly left our instruments in our van that night. Uh, and uh, everybody but our guitar player, Star, uh, who never let his instrument get two inches from him, more than two inches from him. Uh, and the next morning, I, I remember I was on a phone call with my dad and Star ran into my room and he said, Ben, <laughs> is the van supposed to be empty? <laughs> Which is so funny now. Like, <laughs> what kind of question is that? Uh, <laughs> and sure enough, I went outside and everything was gone. It was just mm. gone. And uh, the base, the merchandise, uh, it, was, it was just gone. And um, wow. yeah, and it was, it was devastating, of course. And we were we had one more show on that tour somewhere in Nevada, uh, and we called the venue and just canceled. And we drove straight home. We filed a police report, and we drove straight home from uh, Chicago or from San Francisco to Chicago uh, in an empty van. And uh, and the, if if you if you tour, you know you know what a van feels like full versus empty. And I felt like that entire ride home, it was like 30 some odd hours, every bump reminded me that we had just had everything stolen from us because the van just moved differently, yeah. you know? Um, but the nice thing was, well, we had shows later that week uh, and the, you know, word spread like wildfire that our stuff had been stolen. And, uh, and Jamie, Jamie Deering called me and was like, I can get, you know, we'll figure this out. We'll talk about payment, whatever, later. I'm going to send a banjo to your house. And before I got home, there was a banjo in my foyer, uh, a Deering Golden Wreath in my foyer. And, I, and I've never told her this. I mean, I was, I, I was, it was great to have a banjo. Like, and, it, you know, it was wonderful. But it's not like I picked it out or anything. It was just kind of like, here's one. Great. You got a banjo to play. But it... it I, after I sat with it and played it, I was like, this isn't for me. This isn't my banjo. So I got a Terry Baca model, which was my banjo. I mean, that is, that is the most growly uh, bluegrass. I mean, it's Terry Baucom banjo, you know, it's, it's walnut. Now, you're supposed to play 11s on that. Like the strings you're supposed to play on that banjo are 11s, which I did for six months and it tore my hands up. I don't know how Terry does that. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was uh, just this wild experience that I'll forever hold Deering uh, in my heart for that. Like to, to come back from a 30, probably six hour drive and open my front door and see a banjo case there uh, was just amazing. So that's, that's a good story. I mean, it's a yeah. terrible story, but a good yeah. ending. <laughs> what, do you, what, what do you mean it's a good story? <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> so, um, I know we have a kind of a hard cutoff because you got to go right at the top of the hour. I do want to yeah. mention quickly, get into your work with American Voices real quickly and just maybe mention that. Yeah, so American Voices is the administrating partner for uh, the cultural diplomacy work at the State Department. And they uh, called me up late, late last year and they were like, hey, so I, I had a relationship with them. They, they had sent, been part of the reason we were sent abroad. Like they, I'd, they'd come with us to a bunch of places and, and stuff like that. And so I had a good relationship with them. And the whole, just like everybody else, the State Department had to pivot to virtual programming during COVID. And they needed a specialist at American Voices to help that happen. Uh, and for some reason, they thought I was the one to do that. Uh, and uh, I mean, I was, I've done some podcasts and stuff. So, and it's worked, turned out to be a really great uh, relationship. And so now I work with, for American Voices. It's a really amazing organization. Yes, they do the, they administrate the State Department programming, but they do on their own, they do some really incredible stuff that just lines up perfectly with the kind of stuff that we like to do. They've got these things called Yes Academies where they go to really uh, often war-torn countries and do music programming, teach people how to, uh, you know, how to mix music, how to dance, do hip-hop, classical music in Iraq and in Lebanon and in uh, just places that need that kind of stuff more than anything. And uh, and a lot of people understandably feel like it's not a safe thing to do, but the American Voice has been doing it for so long that, and they have relationships that make these programs possible and, and they kind of profoundly change people's lives. And I was in New York City yesterday working on a podcast for them and I got to interview these two young uh, students from Afghanistan, these two incredible classical musicians from Afghanistan who are refugees uh, and just hearing their story about what it was like to learn how to play piano in Kabul uh, with the Taliban breathing down their necks. And, yeah. and uh, they were talking, I asked them about their school, which is right in the center of Kabul. And I was like, what's, what's, what's going on with your school now? And, and he was like, well, we heard that the Taliban is now using it as a, a base of operations. So this, this school for music that brought these kids joy and education now is uh, not being used for that anymore. We'll put it that way. Uh, and it's just a powerful perspective to have. And it really harkens back to why we try to make connections like that, because nothing gives you perspective more than hearing how other people's lives are and, and the struggles they go through, you know? Yeah, very so, true. Mm-hmm. Well, everybody check out, you know, I- you know, check out the Prowlers, check out American Voices, check out um, Bluegrass Ambassadors. And um, and do you have one more song in you? <laughs> Shit, the band? Me, yeah. Hey, you guys want to do one last song? Sure. <laughs> well, thanks. Uh, thanks so much. While you're getting it together, thanks so much for having us, for, have, for, be, for being here and having the whole band play. So it was great having, it's great hearing the, everybody. Yeah. This was... But, uh, the, the, while Maybe the guys are coming back in, I gotta tell you this in the chat. When you guys played the uh, the Saudi Soul, is that how you uh, pronounce it? Song? Yes. Yeah. The uh, the jaw dropping mouth wide open emojis just started rolling in when <laughs> <laughs> in the chat. That was absolutely yeah. fantastic. That was yeah. The- everyone was just. It's really cool. Really yeah, well, I, we get just as much pleasure out of that as every, anybody else does. It, it really is fun to, to, to learn and play those songs. And again, go and check out Sauti Soul, S-A-U-T-I-S-O-L, uh, on YouTube and look for Suriako. They also do this other great tune called Live and Die in Africa that I love a lot, too. Uh, I, just, I just read that just announced their first major label uh, tour as well. It looks like. Oh, yeah? So, are, yeah. They, are they coming here? Uh, I didn't get that far, but uh, definitely worth a Google. What's that? All right, I'm going to jump in. What'd you say? You got any idea? No. Let's do well, everybody, thanks for listening. And uh, we'll see y'all. It's the last one of the year. We'll see y'all in the new year um, with Chris Pandolfi uh, right up oh. the new year. Nice.
Thanks, guys. We'll uh, we'll take you out with uh, this is uh, this is Chop My Money from Nigeria. Two, three, four. Stays on my mind. Walk down the street, every guy wanna jump on your behind. It's your seduction to make sure that we stay in line. Sexual corruption, cause I can't let anyone fool your time. Time, time, time. Leaving yeah. I'll make real dough. You're the reason they'll be boy.
Nairobi.